I want you to know that today it's important for us to come to the cross. It was so beautiful yesterday to see a story of what the cross does in people's lives. I think that if there's anything that we should be identified as today is the people of the cross. I titled today's message that, the people of the cross. Yesterday, our very own brother, Albert and sister Brandy, met here at the foot of the altar at the cross and vowed together to, to be married till death do them part. And it's amazing, it's so beautiful when you see two people come together and say, you know what, because of what God's done for us, because of the love that He's demonstrated to us, now we want to demonstrate to one another and be committed to each other as Christ has been committed to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that Paul now is talking to the church of Corinth, and it's very easily to compare the church of Corinth to the church or to the state that we live in, the church in California. <laughs> we studied last week that it was called the vanity fair of their time. If there's ever a time where there was a vanity fair, where we see that vanity plays such an important part of our culture, it's today. Where everything is about self and vanity and pride and, and how we can present ourselves or build our name and brand, it is today. And through 1 Corinthians, I want you to know that we learn what it means to live a blameless life. Today, God wants us to live a blameless life, to live a holy life in an unholy world. You know why the cross is so important for this? Is because it's the starting point of your journey in faith. When you start your journey of faith, guess where you started? You started when you look at the cross, and that's where you should stay at the cross, and that's where we should finish at the cross. You see, the problem with the church of Corinth was that they had a big problem in the church where there was pride and lack of true love. Whenever you get pride and lack of true love in anything, you are headed now down the road to disaster. You see, we are called today not only to live in humility, to live in honesty, but also to live in holiness. And I want you to remember that today. How am I living my life? Am I living my life in humility, in honesty, where it's true love, and also in holiness, where it's blameless? When we open the first chapter of the letter to 1 Corinth, we saw that Paul said, I'm an apostle, called an apostle by the will of God. Why did he say by the will of God? Because he valued the will of God more than he valued human wisdom or understanding. What do you value today? Do you value the will of God? Are you living in the will of God? You see, in Corinth, it was all about human wisdom, philosophy of their time, pride and knowledge of trying to debate whether something was right and wrong. And people had become so proud in their hearts that their pride did not allow them to have faith. You know that pride is the biggest roadblock to you having faith in Jesus Christ? Because you say, I'm good in and of myself. I don't need Jesus. I don't need the Lord. I am great in and of myself. I, that, that is foolish to me. And it starts to create barriers around your heart, your mind and soul that where you do not allow yourself to believe because your heart has become hardened and, and pride. You see, the church in Corinth was experiencing that. And they were in need of radical spiritual surgery as we mentioned last week. Are you in need today maybe of some radical spiritual surgery where you have to say, Lord, look into my heart, be that master physician. I need a heart transplant. 
I need you to take my heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh that is soft, that is tender, that is gentle, that is loving, forgiving, and merciful. You see, the church was filled with division, was filled with disorder, and was filled with difficulty because of the pride. And if we study the Bible, we know that God's church, we together, we are the church, God's called us to unity. Number one, He's called us to unity. He's also called us to order and He's also called us to live that order through biblical guidance. Through the first 11 chapters, you're going to see that He gives us unity. He gives us the recipe to order, but He does it through biblical guidance. If you want your marriage to succeed, it has to happen through biblical guidance. You want to have a life where it's enriched through the blessings and the grace of God. It has to happen through unity, order, and biblical guidance. You see, never will you accomplish what God called you to do without unity, order, and biblical guidance. And now what he does is he starts to deal with the carnality in the church, the sin that was creeping into the church and that had invaded the church. We have to be careful what we allow in our lives. I want you to know that today. Maybe we allow things so loosely in our lives. In Corinthians, it was called the culture of loose living. It was a free-for-all culture where everyone allowed anything that made them feel good take place. Just because it makes you feel good, I want you to know, doesn't mean it's right in God's eyes. Just because it provides you a temporary satisfaction, doesn't mean that God approves of it. And here he tells us we have to deal with sin. We cannot be living in sin and say we are on God's will. In fact, for every aspect of carnality here, Paul gives us a dynamic remedy that comes from the gospel. We need Jesus. We cannot continue living in sin. You see, the gospel is not only to forgive you of your sins. The gospel also is to give you, now, deliverance from your sins. And today, we need deliverance. That's where we're coming to communion. Because not only do we want to appreciate forgiveness, but we want deliverance from our sins so that we can live a holy life. I, re I remember this week, and I was mentioning to my wife how a co-worker went to me and told me and asked me the question, which I thought, wow, we are living in times like this, where this is such a normal question now. And in Corinth, it was all about sexual immorality. And today it so likewise is. Sexual immorality is so loose and so primitive in our culture. I had an individual come to me at work and ask me, Hey, since you're a Christian, did you and your wife have sex before you were married? And it took me back that they would ask me this. But guess what? This is the culture that we're living in. We're living in a culture where we're deciding to pleasure over holiness. We're deciding to live a life that is so loose... So liberal in our mentality over getting the biblical guidance that we need through God's word. You see, in those moments where you get those questions as a church, as a Christian, they're an opportunity for you to display what a Christian and Jesus look like and take people to the word of God and what the Bible says. It's so amazing because it's encouraging. And you start to learn what drives you. Is Does lust drive you or does the love of God drive you? You see, the city here of Corinth was filled with morality, and, and in that immorality, they were bankrupt to morality. And it was invading the church. We end it now in verse 10, where it says this, of 1 Corinthians, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same Judgment. What does he say? He's promoting unity. What do we need? Unity. We need order and we need biblical guidance. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God. We pray, Lord, that there would be unity in the church. That the place would not be a place of division, but a place where there is unity that is being constantly birthed, cultivated, and fostered. It's not a place where we come to debate and not a place where we come to argue or to share one another's differences. In fact, it's a place where we can promote unity that comes through Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and together we said, Amen. It says, now I plead with you, I beg with you, church. He's talking to the church now. I want you to know that as we go through 1 Corinthians, you're going to think he's talking to the world because of the things he's talking about. But in fact, he's talking to the church, to the believers. He's not talking to the non-believers. He's talking to the church because he knows, Paul knows, that in the church, our pride is going to lead us to division. We're going to think that we're better than people. We're going to think that we're celebrities, that we're high up. We think that we're high and mighty and we don't become humble. We don't want to connect with one another. And he says, I need to address the hard issues within the church. It's interesting when we want to address the, the issues that are not controversial. But he says, I want to talk about the things that divide people. And I want to tell you that you ought to foster and, and cultivate unity. In fact, in verse 10 it says, I beg you, I plead with you, I appeal to you for unity. That is the cause of the Christian unity. I want you to know that in your marriage, the cause of your marriage, the cause for your children, the cause for your church, the cause for your ministry, that cause is unity. And in that cause, it's important because it says here, I plead with you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, is by Jesus' name or the authority that comes through Jesus. It's not His authority. It's the authority of Christ. When we come to church, no, it's not the person giving the message. It's not the name. It's the authority from the Word of God. It's not man's opinion. When you come to church, don't say, well, it's man's opinion. It's, it's man-made or it was man-written. No, this is the... Holy Word, inspired Word of God that is prophetic, that is irrefutable, that you cannot come against. It's God's authority through the name of Jesus. And in that name, He tells them here, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together. First of all, speak the same thing. That you wouldn't be teaching different theology, different doctrine, different teachings. That not some of you would believe one thing and others believe another thing. But he says here that there would be no divisions. Is there divisions among us sometimes? It's sad when the church is split because when the church is split, we automatically halter what God wants to do. And we come to church and, and there's divisions, there's carnality, there's sin. These are evidences of an immature church or an immature Christian. Have you ever seen someone coming and talking bad about either the leadership or a person at church, a family at church? You have to wonder what are they saying about you when they walk away. <laughs> because more than likely that person that said something about someone else is walking away to say something about you. And, and those are characteristics. Those are traits. I want you to know these are traits of immature Christianity. When there's division taking place. And he says, I want you to live in harmony. Harmony means that there is uniform testimony. I want you to live in harmony where there is uniform testimony. And this is important here because he says, I don't want you to be ripping each other apart. See, when there's division at a home, guess what a husband and a wife do? They start to rip each other apart. And that's not what God intended. When there's division in the church, what happens? We start to rip one another apart. But it says that you be perfectly joined together. 
And I want to study that word with you perfectly joined together because joined together is a medical term that was originally used when this was written and Paul used it to describe something so deep, joined together. In fact, it was talking about knitting together bones that had been fractured or that had been dislocated. It was used to cure a disunion that was unnatural. You see, that's what joined together means. To perfectly join together bones that have been fractured or that have been dislocated. That's what division does. It fractures the body of Christ. It fractures marriage. It dislocates what God wants to do. He's saying, I want you to bring a cure. I want you to bring a remedy to the dislocation and to the fractures that is taking place in the body of Christ. And I plead for an outward expression that comes from an inward spirit. You cannot be united outwardly if inwardly there is pride. There is no way that happens. You can't speak the same thing externally when, when internally your heart and your mind is somewhere else. The Bible says that out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. And in fact, he's saying, don't allow divisions. Have one mind, have one mind in thoughts and have one mind in purpose. What is your thought and purpose? Because when we have one mind and thought and purpose, we can now accomplish the vision that God called us to do. We can accomplish the vision that God called us to do. Division, you know what it is? In the church, it's a sign of competition as well. We're not competitors of one another. We are contributors of one another. Where we do the same mission and calling together. And in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, when he's talking about unity, when he's talking, in fact, to husbands and wives, when he's talking to the church here in 1 Peter, Peter tells the church, Finally, you be of one mind. Have compassion for one another. You want to have unity, the best, uni- uh, the best recipe for unity is compassion because it allows you to have humility and forgiveness for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted and be courteous. Not returning evil for evil, it says, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, a blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. That's what it tells us. See, what are you inheriting from the relationships that you have? You see that He gives us the foundation to unity, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ that joins us together perfectly to something that has been fractured, it can be healed. Something that has been dislocated, it can be located again and united again in its place together. You know what's interesting here in verse 10 now? That in 10 verses, Paul uses the name of Jesus 11 times. That's interesting that in 10 verses, he uses Jesus 11 times. You see, in his emphasis of using Jesus, Paul's promoting here the sure cure for the problems of the church in Corinthians. You want to know the cure? In 10 verses, I'm going to name Jesus 11 times. That is the cure to the problems of the church. Jesus. Why? Because he's telling them, you want to fix those problems that are taking place in your life? It means getting your eyes off of self and putting your eyes on Jesus. So I'm going to repeat his name over and over and over again. Because the cure to division in the church is getting your eyes off of yourself and putting your eyes on Jesus. Where are your eyes today? Are your eyes on self or are your eyes on Jesus? The cure to Christian now carnality is to get your eyes off yourself get your eyes off of sin get your eyes off the world and put your eyes on jesus where is your focus today 
Where is your focus today? Uh, we need to ask ourselves that before we go to communion. Because the, our, our, really our, our direction, the direction that we're taking right now, will determine the destiny of what we reach. What is the direction that you're taking right now? The direction that you're taking every day will determine the destiny of where you will soon be. What you do today will affect where you'll be tomorrow. And that's why it's important to keep your eyes on Jesus. In verse 11 and verse 13 it says, It has been declared to me, almost like a parent, it says, you know what, someone told on you guys at church. Has somebody ever told on you and your parent comes up to you or maybe a boss or a leader or somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I know someone told me now, there's some division going on here, I'm calling you guys out now. I'm going to say it like it is. And it says, it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren. Again, he calls out the church. It says, by the house of those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. There, somebody told me that in the church here, there was rumors and there was secrecy of little cliques going on and little divisions and quarrels among you, brothers and sisters. It has been told to me, even from Chloe's household, that there are divisions. There's little parties and cliques. That is not to exist in the church. Where some people believe that they're better than everyone else because they're a part of a certain group. No way. That's not to exist in the church. In fact, it says here now. Now I say this, that each of you says, you guys are saying, I am of a Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Everyone now is getting into this mentality of secretarian where they believe that they belong to a, pe- a person rather than they belong to Jesus. When you come to church, I want you to know that your relationships should be Christ-centered more than people or man-made centered. You, you, you are not to say, I am of Paul. You are not to say, I, I am of a, a church, of a denomination, or of a group. I am of Jesus Christ. That's what you are to say and identify with. You see, why is everyone here in verse 12, he's saying, identify, I am from this person, I am from that person, I am from Apollos. You know what happens when you start to think like that? You think that you're better than somebody else because you belong to a different group. But when you belong to the same family, guess what? There's unity. When you start to say, well, I'm from that leader's ministry, or I'm from this leader's ministry, guess when you start to think, well, we're better than them. Because this leader, this man is more recognized than that one. And guess what happens? There starts to become pride in your heart. Why is it that everyone is identifying themselves through different names of people instead of the name of Jesus Christ? And it says here in verse 13, is Christ divided? Is, is that what Christ has shown you to be divided? Is that what Christ has taught you to identify yourself with a man, with a name, with somebody else? Is that what Christ has shown you? Oh man, it says, was Paul crucified for you? Why do you say you're from Paul? Paul, Paul never was crucified for you. He says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's so interesting when people say, you know what, I, I am following that person. Wherever that person goes, I'm following that person. Are you following that person or are you following Jesus? Paul said, if you're going to follow me, just know I'm following Jesus. And we're going to end up where Jesus wants us to go. Imitate me because I'm only imitating Jesus. Don't just follow me. We're following the Lord. A lot of people want to create for themselves followers. But how many times do you want to create followers for Christ? It's not about how many followers you have. It's about how many followers you've created for Jesus. And here people are trying to build a brand, build a name for themselves. And they have become divided because the church thought that it, their name was more important than the name of Jesus. Your name is not more important than the name of Jesus. I want you to know that. 
The name of Jesus is more important than anything else. And that's why we come to church. Because we are called to be a Christ-centered church. Ask yourself, who is your Lord and Master? Who is my Lord and Master? Who is it that I serve? I was not baptized in the name of a pastor. I wasn't baptized in the name of a church. I was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the name of Jesus Christ. And it says now in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Lest any of you should say that I am baptized in my own name. He said, I'm thankful that I never baptized any of you. Because then you would be saying, more of you would be saying that, that you belong to me. You don't belong to me. You belong to Jesus. There's something beautiful about a man and a woman that are serving the Lord and saying, I'm just the background. I'm just a canvas. I'm moving out of the way. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And I'm thankful, he's saying, that I made the main attraction, not myself. I made the main attraction, Jesus. What's the main attraction in your life? Is it you? Is it your gift? Is it, is it your name? Is it your brand? Is it your building? No, the main attraction in your life should be Christ in you. And the only reason that God has given you the gifts that you have are not to build your name, but they're to build His name. To create a platform for Himself. Verse 14, it says it very clearly. I thank God that I didn't baptize you because I never wanted to draw attention and attraction to myself. When you start to see that people are, are causing attraction and attention to themselves, they want to build a little fan base, they want to build a little clique, they want to start dividing the church, talking bad about people. Hey, that person's not even about Christ. It's not about that person. It's not about their name. It's not about what they believe, their opinion. It's about Jesus. And Paul is saying the traction is towards Christ. Verse 16, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. He said, I, I don't think I baptized many of you. And I thank God I didn't. Because I never gave you the option to say that you were following me. I always gave you the option to saying you were following Jesus. And it's so sad how sometimes pastors even elevate themselves higher than what they should be, elevate themselves. The name of Jesus is why we're here. We're servants. We're all equal in the eyes of God. And we're serving the Lord. We're not serving uh, against one another. We're serving with one another. We're not serving in the spirit of competition. We're serving in the spirit of collaboration. We're moving God's word and we're pushing it together. And it's so interesting that sometimes you see that, that people, servants, men, want to become celebrities within the church. We're not celebrities. We're nobody. And we need God for everything. In verse 17, it says here, For Christ did not send me to baptize, he's saying here, but to preach the gospel with the wisdom of words, lest, but not with wisdom of words, lest, with, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. See, God did not send me, He did not send me to baptize, He sent me to preach. I want you to underline in your Bible, God did not send me. <laughs> you know why we always think that God sent us to do everything. Oh, I'm called to, to do that. I'm called to tell that brother. I'm going to tell him right now. Right now. Or God called me to do all 18 ministries of the church and I'm going to be involved. I'm going to run through all of them within six months. You know, he knew what God called him to do, but he also knew what God called him not to do. I think what's, it's very important that we know what God called us not to do. Where God called us not to go. Where God called us not to be a part of. Sometimes we have this thing that we, we believe that we always have to be busy doing so many things. And the more that we do, the more that we are now showcasing how, how grand we are. Have you overcommitted yourself with things in life that God never even called you to do? Maybe your schedule looks so busy and God said, I, half of those things I never even called you to be a part of. 
He's saying, God didn't call me to baptize. He called me to preach. And he called me to preach with a central, simple message, a humble message of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. That's the message that he was preaching, the cross of Christ. That's the central message. And he said, he didn't call me to come preach it with wisdom of words to try to impress people. And there's so many people that want to impress people into the family of God. You can never impress anyone into the family of God with your words. That does not lead anyone to Christ. What lead people to Christ is the cross of Christ, knowing that in that cross, you find out you are a sinner. And that you need Jesus to forgive you of your sins. That's the power of the cross. When you try to use wisdom of words, guess what you do? You confuse people. When you try to use wisdom of words, you try to now lead people to yourself. When you use wisdom of words, guess what you do? You try to now impress them. And human understanding and human wisdom is not what we should put our emphasis on. The emphasis should always be on the cross of Christ because it changes and transforms lives. You see, when we become impressed with big words, we start to be followers of people. And these people wanted to pay always. They wanted to be about philosophy, about pride and cleverness. And, and that distorts the gospel. I want you to know. It distorts the gospel because it's a self-centered gospel. The gospel, the true gospel, it's simple and it's a selfless gospel. It's a gospel that allows you to come to the cross and die to yourself. And the people had ignored the simple message of the cross. That is the focus and that is the attention. The cross of Christ. And that's why we're called to be the people of the cross. Because in the cross you also not only find forgiveness, but you also become free of your guilt. It's sad that some people maybe are forgiven. They've been forgiven by God, but they've never forgiven themselves, so to speak. And they walk around years and years in life with this guilt on their shoulders and on their heart, knowing, guess what? That God has forgiven them already. You know why they walk around with that guilt? Because they walked away from the cross. When you walk in the cross and you embrace the cross, the dramatic love of Jesus Christ, we know I don't have to live in shame. I don't have to live in guilt. I'm living in grace because of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said that the cross is an, a, a must instrument of death for every disciple of Jesus. That means that if you call yourself a disciple, a Christian, that means you have to take up your cross. He said in Luke 9.23, and He said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross every day and follow me. What does that look like to take up your cross every day and follow him? It means that every day when I wake up and say, Lord, I'm not going to live my life after me. I am going to live my life after the Lord. Every day deny yourself. Every day come to the Lord and say, every day I'm taking up my cross. Today I'm waking up and I'm going to wear the cross of Christ. Not only outwardly, but I'm going to carry the burden of the cross. Sometimes we want to carry the cross like it's a fashion statement. <laughs> the cross is not a fashion statement. In fact, the cross is a place where we deny ourselves and we serve our spouse. We serve our children. We deny ourselves to our fleshly appetites. For our carnal desires that want to now lead us away to sin. That's why we need the cross every day. So that we don't deviate from the cross. That we don't become distracted away from it. Sometimes we start with the cross and guess what we do? We, we, we come to church and on Sundays we wear the cross of Christ. But Monday morning we go and hang that cross up in the closet. And we don't take it out till Wednesday night or till Sunday morning. And that's not what God intended for His disciples. He intended that you carry the cross daily. That is the central message that's going to lead us to salvation, the cross of Christ. Not wisdom of words, not your own pride, not your own ego, not your own philosophy. Not saying I'm good in and of myself that I don't need Jesus. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
And to those that are in the world, they think, they look at you, man, you're, are you serious? Man, you're so lame. <laughs> you, you're denying yourself from so much fun because of the cross. It's foolishness, the thought of the cross. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Perishing means to those that are headed in destruction of the world. When you think about the cross, that's a foolish lifestyle. How can you possibly be living your life after something that's dictated because a man came down, died on the cross for your sin, that is just so foolish. You see, that's the world's mentality. It is foolish, the cross. But to others, the cross is the power of God for salvation. I want you to know and ask yourself, what does the cross mean to you today? You know what the cross does and it's going to teach us here? The cross destroys and brings to nothing human intelligence for us to know that in and of ourselves, in our human wisdom, we are nothing and that we need Jesus in everything. In fact, perishing means that it's a constant process of everything that God does not want for you. That's perishing. Everything that God did not design for you, everything that God did not intend for you, that's what perishing is. Everything that God did not intend for you. In fact, save is everything that God has for you. And I want you to know that today. Everything that God has for you is right there in the cross. It's nowhere outside of the cross. Everything that God has for you is in the cross. And in the cross, salvation is the process of becoming more like Jesus. You see, what is your view of the cross? To one man, it's foolishness. It's ridiculous. It's nonsense, the cross. But to another man, it's salvation. To those that reject the salvation of the cross, in fact, it's the idea of being saved to the work of a crucified man. That's foolish. Why would you ever choose that life? It's foolishness to think that the death and resurrection uh, that penetrates the the core of self-centeredness should dictate my life. You know why people hate the cross? Because it it comes and and it dictates the core of your self-centeredness. That's what the cross does. It tells you that you're selfish. It tells you that you're prideful, the cross. It tells you that you are sinful. It tells you that you need to be more humble. That's exactly why it's foolish to people because we're living in a life that's about us. And the cross tells you, well, you know what? It's not about you. It's an upside down message from the world's message. But to, but to those who humbly bow in faith at the cross, it's the power that snatches you from death and lets you live an eternal life with Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing to know that the cross snatched you away from death? You see, our pride and our ego is discarded at the cross. Every time you come to the cross, you find out how more, more prideful you are. And if you don't think you're prideful, go to the cross and look at it and you find out how much you are. How much sinful we are. How much egotistic we become, we become and selfish. But that all dies at the cross. That's why we need the cross. And to the world, that's foolish. But to us that believe in Jesus Christ, it's the power that takes you out of darkness and into light. And, and we realize that we need the Lord in everything. We're either going to be delivered from the disease of self and sin, or we're going to be becoming more and more like Jesus. Which one are you going to choose to do? Are you accepting the cross? Because when you accept the cross, I want you to also know what you accept. You accept the will of God. When you reject the cross, you reject the will of God. But when you accept the, wear, uh, the cross, I'm going to wear it, and I'm also going to bear it. I'm accepting the will of God in my life where I deny myself. And it's a constant process. As I embrace the cross, I'm also embracing the will of God. When you reject the cross, you're rejecting the will of God. For it is written, verse 19 from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise 
and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The world tells us one thing about Jesus, but the Bible tells us that only in Jesus will we find true wisdom. Everything in our culture is anti-Christ now. It's anti-cross. It's anti-humility. It's all a vanity fair. And here it tells us, I will bring and destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring it to nothing. The understanding of the prudent will come to nothingness. Why? Because that's what the cross does. Where is the wise? Where is the described? Where is the disputer of the age? Has God not made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Has not God made the, just the simple things really what are the most valuable and more wise in the world? See, he's going to teach us now that God has given now us the ability to come to the cross and be simple, be humble, and be holy. And I want you to never leave that place where you're simple, humble, and holy. Because when you become that, guess what? You are available now at the foot of the cross to be used by God. And I love that he goes on from verse now 24 to verse 31. He teaches us one thing. God didn't call these expensive people with expensive words to go out and preach the cross. He, he called simple people. He called normal people and people just like me and you to love one another, to grow one another, to edify one another. I remember when the Bible study was first starting and, and these group of men were just so on fire for the Lord and one of them said, man, God can use us. I believe that God can use me now. I, I came here to the Bible and I know God can use me. If God can use our, of course because He can use me. And I found it so funny, but it was so true. If God can use us, of course He can use somebody else, right? We're an example, and I tell people this all the time, I'm an example that God can use anyone. We are an example that God can use anyone. Why? Because it's not about us, it's about Christ, and it's about the cross of Christ. And because of that, we need to be ready to come and die to ourselves and know that without Jesus, we're nothing. And we need Him in everything. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the cross, Lord. We thank You because You have revealed Your gift of salvation. We thank You, Lord Jesus, because of the fact that in and of ourselves we're nothing, Lord, and we need You. And I ask right now by the power of Your Spirit, Lord, You would show us and demonstrate to us, Lord, that we need to deny ourselves daily, God. That we need to come to the cross for humility. We need to come to the cross for, Lord, honesty. We need to come to the cross for holiness. And maybe today, Lord, we are being pierced at the core of self-centeredness. We are being convicted at the essence of pride. Lord, we feel the offense when it comes to our ego. And we thank you for that because we want to feel that way. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to feel that way, that we would feel awkward when it comes to selfishness, that we would feel uncomfortable when we make it about ourselves. It's not about ourselves, God. It's not, it's not about ourselves, Lord. We're nothing. We need you, Lord, in everything. We ask, Lord, that you would let us cultivate unity, order through biblical direction and guidance. And maybe today we've stepped away from the cross. But not only do we want to wear it, we also want to bear it. We ask, Lord, that you would do a transformation in us. Before we take communion, before we observe and remember the cross, 
I want to slow down a little bit and say, Lord, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this the right way. If we're going to talk about the cross, we want to make sure that we put to death self-centeredness, we put to death sin, and we do not let sin invade our lives any longer. We do not let sin have control over us. We do not let the enemy have control over our lives or dictate our lives. We choose the cross because we choose the will of God. Lord, be with us, Lord, and give us the strength, the courage to obey.